This week in a lively experiment, the debate over abortion legislation takes another unexpected twist. Will a bill make it through the General Assembly this session? And URI President David Dooley's proposal to create a separate board of trustees runs into a buzzsaw of criticism from some state officials. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by for 30 years, a lively experiment has been helping us understand the most important issues facing Rhode Islanders. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. and I'm proud to be a sponsor of this great program. Joining us on this week's panel, Patrick Anderson, State House reporter for the Providence Journal. Ted Nisi, politics and business editor for WPRI TV and URI political science professor, Maureen Moakley. Welcome in everybody, I'm Jim Hummel. It's been another eye-popping week up at the State House, and much of the focus has been on the evolving abortion rights legislation, which passed the House earlier in the session, but has had a rockier road in the Senate. At the 11th hour, a procedural move by the chairwoman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and that has kept the legislation alive but it has some people crying foul. Uh, Ted, even the veteran reporters up there were trying to figure out what all the procedure was. Can you set the table on, you know, people who haven't been paying particular attention to this, what happened up there the well, other just night? To, I think uh, I looked at Twitter a little while later and realized that Patrick, I think, me, Ian Don, and all the state supporters all tweeted, wow, 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 because we were all taken by surprise, I think it's fair to say. Do you um, keep your rule book in your, uh, in your pocket? <laughs> well, you know, I think it's more, things are so orchestrated, uh, and again, Patrick can speak to this too, things are so orchestrated generally at the assembly in advance that you're rarely surprised. And this is actually the second time on this bill we've been surprised when Archambault uh, flipped and voted no last time and it, and it died there, and then they suddenly kept the House bill alive. Um, I guess the simplest way to say this is there's a rule for everything, and uh, the Republicans have the right, the leaders, to step onto the committee and uh, on any committee and vote on a bill. And it looked like Dennis Algier, the Republican leader, and Elaine Morgan, the uh, whip on the Republican side, were going to jump on the Judiciary Committee for the day and provide the votes necessary to kill the abortion rights bill. Uh, but then the, the Democratic leadership had something in its back pocket, which is there is a rule that allows the chair of the committee to unilaterally transfer the bill into a different committee. And Aaron Lynch Prada, sort of the judiciary chair, checkmated them, the Republicans, and shipped it to the health committee beforehand. Now, the Republicans say it wasn't done uh, in the way it was supposed to and are crying foul. But, of course, I was talking to John Marion from Common Cause about this yesterday, and there's no... Even if they did somehow mess up there, in, in the end, the body manages itself, and there would surely be enough votes from the Democrats to, to uphold whatever the chair did. So it looks like looks like that's how it's going to go. So we should say, we're taping this on a Thursday uh, instead of our normal Friday. It'll go to the Health and Human Services Committee, so that could pass by the time you see this. But then the real thing is, is whether it gets to the Senate floor and what happens there. Well, right? I think the whole idea was to get it to the floor. The legislative leaders do not want this hanging around. They want to be done with it. They, it's it's op, op, made a lot of problems within this session, down there at the state house, as well as they don't want this into an election year. This, they want this on the floor. And they can at least say, I think, it, it, sticking up for the Democrats, at least it is they want it to come to a vote. In other words, they want it to come to a vote. And I would say I'm really disappointed at the way this worked out because it's very clear that this abortion debate as it is now, it's not about ideology, it's not about morals, it's about strategy, it's about political partisanship.
And it's unfortunate because this is a really tough issue. It's very, very hard to negotiate. But on top of that, this is really about a Republican strategy. They think this is, they're holding together. If you recall, when the House voted, there were nine members, one mo member, all of them voted against it, except one. And he voted his conscience that he was pro-choice. He was excoriated by the leadership because they didn't hang together. So what's complicating this is they say it's really not about resolving the issue. I admit it's difficult, and I respect people's opinions on both sides. What I don't respect is the idea that this has been turned into a political wedge. I mean, it's obviously very political. Um, but I think on this issue, there really isn't a kind of partisan divide. It's really about the individual lawmakers and, and where they come down. I mean, it's, it's, it's really Democrats versus Democrats uh, that are deciding whether this goes forward or not. And, and, and it has, to, to a large extent, as, as Ted mentioned, with all of this maneuvering, there's actually been less leadership control of the individual legislators than you almost ever see. I mean, they're obviously exerting their influence, but it is the least scripted, uh, the least orchestrated big issue debate I've, I've maybe have ever seen up there. Um, and, and that's refreshing to just see things uh, move in this way and people uh, getting to express themselves and feel like that their vote matters um, and that what they say matters and they can take these sometimes surprising dramatic turns and think it can actually make a difference. Because in the but, old years, the, the, the speaker wouldn't have even let it come to the floor. But the point is, I, I understand what you're saying, and I absolutely agree that there are people on both sides that have a moral position on this, and I respect it on both sides. But if that was the case, the idea is to get this out on the floor and let the Senate vote on it so that these people that, you know, the leadership is letting them do what they want to do, but they can't vote. I mean, they have to vote. And in that regard, I just think it smacks of kind of Washington politics, you know, where this, this has become a wedge issue that I think the Republicans think down the road, it may be good for them. I mean, I, you know, to speak up for the, you know, I, I talk to a lot of folks on this and mm -hmm. I get, I'm sure Patrick does to a lot of emails on mm -hmm. both sides of this issue. And I, I think it's, sometimes I think this is less political than people think. I think people's beliefs on this issue are so profound. Mm -hmm. If you listened to Elaine Morgan, Senator Morgan, after the debate the other night, she was saying, she said, I see this as murder. You know, she, mm -hmm. and you, if someone sees this as murder, you almost can't blame her for exercising her trying to exercise her power ex officio to step on the committee and vote. And then, of course, Erin Lynch Pratt exercised her power as chair to move it to a different committee. So I think, I think Patrick's right. It's, 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 it is refreshing, especially as a statehouse reporter, to see a debate just play out, actually play out, not be entirely orchestrated in advance. And I think, frankly, that's part of why it's messy. As to the procedure. Well, this issue is messy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very difficult issue. And we know what we know is that... You know, when the, when the pro-choice people say 70% of the people, that doesn't give you a good picture because it doesn't measure intensity. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, uh, with the pro-life people say uh, it's 77% of the people don't want uh, abortion up until the 
day before, you know, right away. And of course they don't. In other words, there's a, a, I think, a consensus that people accept Roe v. Wade, and when you get into late term, it's very, very difficult. Just uh, quickly, uh, as to the procedure. So I don't think this was a particular secret. I had heard rumblings that Elaine Morgan and Senator Algier were going to come in. Why didn't the Democrats counter? I think that's that's a great Where's question. McCaffrey? Where's Goodwin? I mean, I don't think Dominic Ruggiero is going to walk into the room, but why didn't they do well, that? Well, I think, you know, I think all, you know, I, th I believe Senator Majority Leader McCaffrey uh, said he would support a bill that, to codify Roe, which, of course, that is, uh, itself is, in contest, is contested. But He's a question mark, but Ruggiero definitely is going to vote no, and I think the issue is voting yes for something in committee and, and then, then voting no. no on the floor, right. that's going to cause its own questions. Um, you know, where does he really stand? That would muddy the waters even more. And I think then they wanted to avoid. You know, that. there's always, you know, sometimes in politics, people just have. We look for the the you know cynical maneuverings. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's actual beliefs. It may just be Dominic Ruggiero cannot bring himself, nor Mary Ellen Goodwin, to or walk even, into the room to walk into it. the room yeah. and vote yes, even if they're going to walk out and say, "I don't believe it. I'm not supporting this myself, but I want to get it to the floor." Now, of course, uh, if you listen to folks, the Republicans or people on the pro-life side, they say, "When you're." orchestrating, you know, these maneuvers to keep the bill alive and get it out, at what point are you supporting the bill even if you never cast a vote in favor for it? But I think that's that just seems to be a bridge some of the Democratic leaders are not, who are historically pro-life or at least moderate on this issue are not willing to cross. All right. The other focus up at the State House, of course, is the budget. Again, we are taping this on Thursday. It could be coming out tonight. Um, Patrick, as we were talking uh, before the show began, it's not what's uh, in it. It's sometimes what's out and the big surprise. Yeah, That's always you, the question, is it not? Yeah, and can you stay up uh, late enough to read and find <laughs> out what the surprise is? Will you be taking a nap in between? I know you boys will be... Uh, well, you know, they, we'll sit, we sit there in the hallway, and uh, you know, it's quite a scene. Yeah, we'll, we'll be awake and asleep for several hours <laughs> yeah. uh, at the same time up at the State House. Passing, we're all passing each other warm pieces of paper because <laughs> it's being printed off and right voted off. on immediately. So it's, it's quite a night for us in the press So let's say what you're expecting, again, not knowing... Exactly Exactly what's going to go on. We do know that the speaker has come forward and said, look, some of the new programs the governor is proposing is out. Yeah, the question is, does she get something? She, her top priorities are an expansion of her free tuition program and expanding universal pre-K. And does she get, she's definitely not going to get all that she asked for on those issues, but can she get a piece, something that she can grab onto and spin as a victory for her and spin as progress? that she's moving forward over this second term towards what she said she was going to do. And that's still a possibility, and I know they were fighting over that and other things very late last night and the night before, and they're probably back at it uh, right now. So th that's, the, that's the big surface sort of question that we know about. And then, as you said, it's a, it's a non-election year, and usually in those years, there's something, some construction project or some uh, idea that we, we that is totally off our radar that pops up and this is when we finally see it late at, late at night when the budget comes out. So we're going to be watching for that. Um, one of the things I, I'm curious about is it's, the expectation is that the idea of taxing Medicaid, that's going to not happen. And I, I think that's unfortunate. I mean, I think that's one program that we, we spend so much on social services. Most states spend most on education and then social services. Ours is flipped. And the idea that we can't tax these companies um, to chip in for workers um, and, and 
the taxpayers are paying the bill for these working people uh, because they qualify for Medicaid, and it seems to me these large corporations should chip in. So in that sense, I think Matt Mattiello is being overly cautious. I think you could afford to make that tax happen. Was and there possibly, blowback from the, from the, I'm sorry to interrupt, but was there know. blowback from the businesses? Look, yeah, Mr. Business, business Editor. <laughs> businesses don't usually like to pay more taxes, and so you're going to hear blowback on it. Now, not to say you have to defer to the blowback, but yeah, some of the larger, absolutely, there was uh, significant outreach uh, from some of the larger employers uh, to to the Speaker's office in particular, feeling that he would be the most likely to listen to them, That saying this Medicaid tax is bad, it's bad for business, and of course, in Massachusetts, where Governor Baker put in a uh, Medicaid tax on employers who don't provide health insurance or whose employees don't have one, that has gotten a lot of blowback. Partly, the governor's people say they designed their proposal on this to op- to not do what Baker did, because Baker hit a lot of smaller employers That's who right. say they don't it have the different. bandwidth, this and it's was different. very narrow. But if you talk to the Speaker's office, they say, look at Massachusetts, this wasn't popular, why should we be, why should we be doing something that didn't work? So I think the, the business community got to him on that. Um, and the mere fact we haven't even mentioned the marijuana proposal, I think, shows how, you know, there's always possibility of a surprise, as Patrick said, but I think how little anyone thinks that's... But that's uh, written into the budget, so they have to find right. that thing. I found it very interesting that the governor said to you, she went back to the election and Mm -hmm. said, uh, well, I have the mandate now. I was over 50 percent. And that's and to me, that has a little whiff of desperate toward the end to me. I don't know how you felt that. I think it's a little saving face. I think it's a little saving face. I think I think that's because she knows the 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 uh, the avalanche of stuff going out of the budget is coming out. What do you you think she just felt a little bit of. The, uh, the narrative or the initiative was was slipping away. That, that was the sense that I got um, that the speaker uh, had really taken control of things and she wanted to remind him and everyone else that she's still the governor, that she did do well last year and and finally make a case directly to the people. Something she hasn't done that much, especially in recent years on her top uh, issues. Um, and she's kind of come in and out of that, of, of trying to use the bully pulpit. And, and recently she'd been a little more quiet. Um, I think she just wanted to, to, to give it a, a shot and not let uh, the speaker be the only voice that people are hearing uh, towards the end of this big, crucial time. And her team made a conscious choice coming into the second term to pull back on her public schedule, pull back on how aggressively they put her out there. They, you know, they, they, that, that's been obvious. And I think the budget will, again, we're waiting to see tonight as we tape on Thursday what's in it. But I think if a lot of her priorities aren't in there, they might have to reassess whether, you know, you need to have her out there. Because the other thing is when you think about the General Assembly, uh, yes, they're almost all Democrats. Yes, she's a Democrat. But how many of them are really Gina Raimondo Democrats, mm-hmm. right? I think if you if you had to say who are they more aligned with, you'd see a lot more Democrats, especially in the House, who are closer to being Mattiello Democrats or, frankly, neither, you know. But I think, she, you know, it, she, while she had a big election mandate, it's not like it brought in a lot of lawmakers who, uh, you know, were closely aligned with her version of what, where Democrats should be. And, frankly... Uh, it's never been that way up there. And I think that's why she's had trouble. So I think she's always there's always been this push and pull um, between her ideas and then trying to find, are there enough votes and can you get it past the speaker? And the other thing is, let's think about it this way. This is not a tough budget. I mean, this isn't one of these things where we're in the hole, there's a little bit of extra money. And as far as her priorities are concerned, I mean, it's clear she's not going to get, I don't think she's going to get the free tuition. I'm really sorry about continuing to fund a case 
K through 12, that initiative. But it's an ongoing process, so it's still in the works. She, it might be a little bit of a setback, but it's not like out. Yeah, I don't know whether I agree with that. I've been hearing, and Patrick, you've been up there. I've been hearing this has been one of the more challenging budgets. Now, the May revenue estimating helped a little bit, mm-hmm. but because, and so here are our $10 billion. When's it going to be $11 billion? When's it going to, you know, those are recurring programs. I've heard it's been very challenging up there. I don't. Well, challenging, I mean, you, you say something's challenging when you have tough decisions to make. It's, it's not challenging they because be- they have less money to work with. They have more money to work with. It's challenging because there are competing demands. And one of the ways that you, when, when you're the, the <coughs> folks who have to make those decisions, you like to frame it as a very challenging budget financially. But because uh, there are always other things you could spend the, the money on. Um, and, and a lot, and, and most of it still is taken up by the big social service programs. That's where the bulk of the money goes. And a lot of federal and it doesn't, money. Yeah, and it doesn't feel like, you know, that's not something that they can dole out to particular uh, interest groups or, or lawmakers. Um, so that, you know, doesn't feel like they're spending sometimes as much as they are. Yeah, if you imagine the budget, the $10 billion as a pie, you know, we're really talking about arguing about a little slice that's of the pie. Mm-hmm. So much of it's baked in. The education aid, that's a billion dollars on the state side alone. The social, Medicaid alone is $2.5 billion of it. Those are things where, yes, lawmakers can tinker and make changes, but the vast majority of the money is baked in the cake. So you end up ha- it makes the fight over this stuff you mark because they, they're not sitting down saying we have $10 billion to work with, what should we spend it on? They're looking at in the <laughs> dozens to hundreds of millions that are in their discretion and that there wouldn't be major blowback if they made changes to it. So I think that's part of what makes it hard. Right. They and, feel and, like they're looking at this narrow window of where they can operate, even though the budget itself is this big. And, they, and you always have to remember, it kind of gets lost, there is a car tax phase-out happening that is lopping off large chunks of the budget each and will successive continue. year. And of course, that will continue. I mean, she had yep. wanted to slow that down, and that's mm-hmm. not going to happen. And but. the education funding formula that was put in place in 2010 is still another, I think, 30-ish million dollars being added to K-12 quasi-automatically. So mm-hmm. some of it's just the fact that they, they want... They all, everyone has shiny new things they want, but the shiny things they wanted two years ago are still expensive, like right, car tax. Right. All right. URI President Dave Dooley got an unexpectedly harsh uh, reaction this week. Oh, I don't know if it was probably unexpected to him. Uh, this is a late-in-the-session proposal. Uh, he is proposing that URI break off from the Council, uh, P- Council on Post-Secondary Education and have its own board of trustees. And he made his case. Um, Maureen, I know, obviously, you're at URI. You have your own views about this. Were you surprised by the blowback he got from, from some committee? Actually, I was surprised initially that there wasn't much blowback. In other words, this, this came from sort of, they've been asking for this for over a decade. And it's clear that the council isn't going to give it to them. And I clear this, people, the institution of RIC and, and, you know, CCRI, the idea of them breaking out. But it is a common phenomena in terms of New England research institutions. So it's not, they've been talking about it for 10 years. So it looked like uh, they went directly to the legislature and it's Matty Yellow's bill. So you have to think <laughs> it's in good shape. Yes. I mean, you would say, well, okay, this is going to be good. And so... Had to sponsor with some juice. I yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and crossing someone's name off it, it was his. <laughs> yeah, so, right, I mean, you, you figure... There's ne- this is necessarily going to happen. I mean, you're going to get this kind of criticism because there's resentment. The justification for it, I think, and obviously I'm biased, but in large research institutions, you really need 
a broader perspective. You need more flexibility. The council was concerned about who was going to be on the board of trustees, and they were saying all alums. No, you need people for higher education from out of state, from other research institutions to sit on your board, deans and things like that, to talk about these policies that get it in a way. I will say and I, that I think this, the council as it is was short on expertise on higher education issues. And so I see it as a justifiable thing. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it's going to go, but there's going to be a couple of rough spots. Without you know saying whether this is going to fix this, I do think you know the context here is if you want Rhode Island's economy to grow and thrive and improve, you, th the two institutions I would keep the closest eye on are URI and Brown. And, you know, uh, if, you can, if you could get them, especially on the research side, up into some of those top tier rankings further than they already are, uh, you could maybe have a breakout. You know, you think of what uh, the University of Michigan does for Michigan. You think of what the University of California system does out there, and we could go on and on about things. And I think Dr. Dooley and Speaker Mattiello clearly agrees, thinks that this is a way to get URI sort of out of the more parochial concerns that are always hampering institutions in Rhode Island and do that. Will this fix that? I don't know. You know, you need a good board. You need the board to make smart decisions. You need money. Um, but I think that's what's coming out of this is the feeling that, like, can we unshackle URI? Not to mention, Rhode Island spends a lot of money on a lot of things, not a ton of money on public higher ed. Oh, yeah, very low. Yeah. That's the other thing. They were talking about fighting on resources. I mean, they give us about 10% of our budget. So, in other words, it's not like, you know, yeah. uh, they're so... Fighting with the resources aren't there. The resources have but to the, come but the from concern outside. that you, you see this whenever there's a where a higher education proposal like the nursing center or something mm -hmm. that involves kind of the 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 nexus of URI and and RIC or CCRI is a, a, a turf battle and a a feeling that URI will swallow everything and that the other schools will become secondary and I and whether whether that I think URI would say that might be worth it to make uh, to to put us up into another level, but that is the fear that always comes out that, that URI will be the focus and, and the rest of higher education. And to the, the to the funding point, I mean, at what point is URI an all but independent institution that just happens to receive a relatively small percentage-wise? Well, eight, nine, ten percent? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's under not ten percent. Yeah, so much, should so. it be should it, should a hundred percent of its governance be controlled by an entity, the state, that is providing ten percent of its funding? Um, and may not always have good ideas either. But uh, Patrick's absolutely right that the feeling at Rick and CCRI is that like, okay, you split off, you know, and we're the, the stepsisters of higher ed in Rhode Island who are left over, you know, to deal with the problems with governance, don't get that much money, et cetera. Uh, Rick can't even, it looks like, get the free tuition this year, uh, it would appear. So Yeah, and that's a blow. I yeah. Mean, that's a blow for just, them. Just so you don't use the term the redheaded stepchild. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sorry. I, take, yeah, uh, that yeah. was, I appreciate the stepsisters. <laughs> All right, let's do, uh, we have a couple other things. Let's do uh, outrageous first. Patrick, what do you have? this week? Uh, well, actually, I'll, I'll go with a, a kudos here. And this is, we, I, we usually uh, beat up on one of the, on somewhere in, somewhere in the General Assembly for doing something secretive. But the Senate has backed away from a proposal to keep uh, judicial nominating uh, information secret. Okay. So we have to, we have to, we have to be fair and say that they did a good thing when they backed away from something uh, that was, looked like it was going to give uh, the public less information about people who are getting lifetime judgeships. And likewise, they've backed off a little bit on uh, uh, 
uh, Secretary of State Gorbea's bill, which seemed like it was going through on in terms of the, uh, the withholding yes. the uh, withholding the birth dates and all oh, of that. Well, that's not. Go I don't think that's going to go. Yeah, yeah. I think that's going Ted, what do you have? Oh. Well, I, Patrick uh, stole my thunder because I was going to also do a kudos for the assembly because we will be writing a lot of negative stories. Oh my goodness! Like, I know it's a bunch like, of apologists <laughs> trying to make it easier for you to. I know exactly. <laughs> we got to get them to still speak to us in a couple weeks. But I will say one something. I was telling one of my newer colleagues yesterday is they have actually made strides in the. 10 years or so, I've been a reporter here, in um, transparency of the, the steps in the legislative process, obviously not the backroom dealings, but we can now get videos or audio of most, the Senate has work to do, but most uh, committee hearings, committee votes are now online, uh, it's become easier to track bills and things. Some of this, yes, should they just do it? Of course. But they had a choice. They have the and budget they, to do and it. And they have they the money have to the do money. it. Um, but it is, you know, I'll give them credit. They have, they've listened to the complaints over it the years. It makes it easier when you have to go back and listen to something that you yeah. want. It makes yeah. a big deal. Yeah. You know, you, a bill I, suddenly I pops up. You can finally go and find and listen to the audience, see who testified and all of that. Yeah, and I, I, I don't have to face what you have to face, but I do agree. <laughs> I mean, we pound on them a lot. And they, you know, many of them really do their job and try to do it well. So I agree there. Do you have an outrage or a kudo? Are you going to make it a straight? No, no, this is serious. I have an outrage. The outrage is the scandal at DCYF about this horrible situation where this woman, it, it, before anything wrong happens, the idea that the state would allow one woman to take care of eight children with disabilities, that on its surface is outrageous, not to mention the fact that they didn't follow up. There were a couple of um, there were a couple of instances where th they went to the house and it seemed fine. She, it's I mean she's up for manslaughter, mm -hmm. and I mean obviously she is a person that's criminally liable. Mm -hmm. But a system that allows that, and it's not just as I say, it's not just what happens when they're in the home. How I'm not a social worker. Why would you think one woman? could take care of eight people with disabilities. It's truly outrageous. What bothered me about that, too, is that, so the report comes out, Tom Mooney has been all over this. You know, there's there's a little bit of shading of the truth here, too. And so this is the new DCYF. We've heard this how many decades, okay. right? Trista Piccola's doing a great job. Well, the three people they talked about that were let go were already let go. The Advocate's report also says Piccola denied her investigators a copy of separate Department of Administration report, and they had to go around to get it. So where's the transparency? Yeah, I mean, there, right? well, this is a real scandal. I mean, in other words, I'm, there's a normal procedures that I think don't work. But th in this case, I think it's a real scandal. And thank God for the child advocate. I mean, that was a wonderful report. And we need more of that. And this is a real... Um, black eye, I think, for the administration as far as yeah, it, it really I, I is. I think my, uh, two of my colleagues, I know Karen uh, Goggin, Kim Clooney, and Kim, of course, full is also my wife, but they both read it for their reporting and both came away just shocked I think yeah, by because really. I think it's it's the Kim actually did a like Twitter thread of her what she what stuck out to her in the report a, a whole bunch of tweets in her own and uh, what struck me as I was reading through the highlights was just the sheer number of times this family had some interaction with DCYF yes. that should have raised a red flag. I mean, there was formula was being sold on Craigslist. There was a felony conviction, I believe, in another state. I mean, just it just it you do read it and think how are how are there just like not blocks in certain systems saying nope, just that there's no overriding this. We're not giving another child to this person. It's yeah. Yeah, uh, the question is, DCYF has been a mess for so long. What is the model to fix it? I think that's where people, they, they, they look at this and how horrible it is,
but there is not a great frame of reference. And it, it's similar in other states in some ways. Um, we always say, what, what are they doing the in Massachusetts? Is, if, Massachusetts scandals. is equally, oh, no. yeah, right? Oh, right. Exactly. right. Yeah. So I don't know there's a vision for how to actually solve this. And that's an important point. I mean, that, you know, and I, I think we all know people who work at DCYF. There are social workers yes. who work incredibly hard in at DCYF yeah. in the yeah. line of fire. And it's hard to see all this because they're trying to do a good well, job. Well, and almost by definition, right, if you're a family that's interacting with DCYF, you're probably you probably have some struggles of one sort of another. It's not you're not getting mm-hmm. you know upper middle class families sending their kids to private school. These are people who are who are struggling. Something's going on, and so I think Patrick's absolutely right. I mean, it what it, what would it take to have a good um, child welfare agency, and can you ever get to you know 100 percent? But this one, I think part of what shocked people with this is I think this has taken people out of some of their. Uh, sort of rut on DCF, and this seems even worse than quickly the final word. Right. Well, yeah, and I mean the thing is, you could start by having a rule that you don't give a, a woman <laughs> eight children. I mean, it's so irresponsible. Maureen, that's entirely too practical. I don't know what you're thinking <laughs> over there. All right, uh, unfortunately, that is all the time we have. Maureen and Ted and Patrick, thank you. Uh, rest up for tonight, and uh, folks, we will be back here next week to report on everything that maybe you didn't see going on up at the state house. Uh, if you don't catch us at Friday at seven and Sunday at noon, you can always go online. We're on YouTube, we're on Facebook, and your favorite podcast. Take us along with you. Have a great week, everybody, and we'll be back next week as a lively experiment continues. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by For 30 years, A Lively Experiment has been helping us understand the most important issues facing Rhode Islanders. Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to be a sponsor of this great program.